On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Living through a pandemic has made me realize just how much we judge each other based on our health behaviors. Wearing masks, sticking to social distancing rules, getting vaccinated. These things became markers for who is in our circle and who is out. Who is doing the right thing and who is a terrible human being. I saw this play out again and again online, in the office, and in my own group of friends. The choices people made were affecting others around them. The stakes were high, and we got into each other's business. So they're literally calling the police on me. But this kind of judgment happens all of the time, maybe a little more quietly, with all kinds of health conditions, even with issues that people have very little or no control over. We make assumptions about how somebody got sick and who's to blame. For example, with illnesses like lung cancer. It's almost like a scarlet letter. Lisa Carter-Bawa is a researcher who has spent a lot of time looking into the stigma that surrounds lung cancer. She puts it this way. If someone tells you that they had a heart attack, do you look at them and say, oh, you're not vegan and you don't run three days a week? We don't do that. But if someone tells you they have lung cancer, what's the first thing you, people say? Oh, I didn't know you smoked. You know, I had one patient say, I just feel like I'm taking up resources. You know, I did this to myself. This kind of stigma also surrounds obesity, mental health issues, sexually transmitted diseases. The list goes on and on. Here's researcher Alex Brewis. One of the things that's sort of key to understanding stigma is this idea that there's a moral judgment being applied. And these beliefs and attitudes get ingrained in our thinking. What you get is a situation where people are being blamed and shamed around certain arbitrary conditions. Blame and shame lead to stigma, and that comes with all kinds of consequences. It affects how much attention and funding is given to addressing a disease, or how people who have a specific condition are treated. And it goes beyond that. It can really shape people's lives, whether they seek help for a problem and how they feel about themselves. It really makes it very hard for people to have a good life. On this episode, the effect of stigma, we'll take an in-depth look at two different cases. One story digs into the quest to trace the origin of a disease outbreak and where those efforts can lead. The other is a first-person account of living with a condition that's become associated with supervillains and cold-blooded killers. We'll also hear from a researcher who has studied stigmatized health conditions around the world. When there is an outbreak of a new and dangerous disease, there's often a quest to identify where exactly this disease came from. What's the origin? A lot of times it's an important step in figuring out how the illness is spreading, how we can stop it. But more often than not, it becomes a bit of a witch hunt. Can we find the person who started this whole thing? the one who got us all sick. We see examples of this all throughout history, like Typhoid Mary, a New York City cook named Mary Mallon, who was identified as the source of several typhoid fever outbreaks. She was forced to quarantine in isolation and died in a hospital. Her name has become synonymous with spreading disease. In modern times, we've come to use a more clinical-sounding term that gets to the same concept. Grant Hill traces the origin of that term. Spring, 1982. 
Epidemic intelligence officers are almost a year into a troubling investigation. Residents of three major American cities are dying young, really young. Most are gay men. A handful of CDC officials are tasked with finding out why. They crisscross the country, interviewing patients, looking for patterns. Are bad drugs to blame? Something environmental? When reports came of a number of cases that seemed to have sexual contact with one another, they realized that this would offer support for a viral agent. That's researcher and historian Richard McKay. The notion that whatever was causing it could be transmitted sexually and that this could help with their investigations. Interviews in Los Angeles reveal a number of these cases are connected through sexual contact. This was the formation of the cluster, the so-called cluster. The CDC gets deeper into this cluster research, linking one case to the next, hoping it will eventually lead to the, quote, source. Whatever unknown viral agent is at the center of this growing, miserable web. Before long, a number of cases are connected by sexual contact with one person, a Canadian flight attendant known to the CDC as Case 57, one of the few cases researchers had previously seen outside of New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Researchers track down Case 57, ask him about who he slept with. The flight attendant wants to help. He opens his personal address book, shares all the information he has on who he's been with during his travels, over 70 names. It's not nearly a complete list, but it's a start, one that allows investigators to keep connecting dots, identify what might be causing these illnesses. The CDC's cluster study was mostly finished by the autumn of 1982. The study is reviewed internally, prepared for publication, but during this process, terminology changes. Subjects of the study are no longer referred to as cases. They become patients. Then a version of the report, annotated by hand, assigns a number to each patient, depending on the city they're from. But Case 57, the flight attendant, he's not from any of those cities. So he doesn't get a number. Instead, he's given a letter, O, short for out of California. Thanks to his location, patient O doesn't fit neatly within any of the city clusters illustrated in the study's diagram, so he's placed in the center of it. Eventually, the report is typed up. It was finally published in March of 1984. After this, something weird starts to happen. The researchers who wrote the report, they continue to refer to this flight attendant as patient O, but others, including some within the CDC, they start calling him something different. Patient O became patient zero. It seems through a combination of understandable reading errors and possibly also the similarity of O and zero on the typewriters used at the CDC. Zero, like a starting point or the center of a web. Before this specific case, the phrase patient zero did not exist. Now, the term patient zero is used all the time. It has come to represent the first. Be it a plague or a trend, patient zero usually refers to one individual who is the origin. Richard wrote a book about all this, the origin of this origin, called Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic. In it, he tells the story of the first patient zero, Gaetan Dugas, the flight attendant at the center of the CDC's cluster study. His name and identity first became known to the world through the work of journalist Randy Schiltz and his international bestseller, And the Band Played On, which came out in 1987. The book was seen as the definitive history of the early days of the AIDS epidemic, a history that leaned heavily into the CDC's cluster study, and the idea that Dugas had a central role in the epidemic's origin. I'm probably nuts, but I'm on my way to New York to try and find a very sexually active French-Canadian airline steward. The book was enormously popular, nominated for awards, eventually even made into a movie. Mr. Dugas, have you had sex with any of these people? 
Is that what I'm here for? To talk about my beautiful lovers. <laughs> and now I am flattered. In the story that Schiltz wrote, where he identified Gaetan Dugas by name, he combined a number of different elements that the older historical impetus to find an early case had existed separately, but he brought them together in a really dramatic form. Richard says Schiltz portrayed the flight attendant as a devilishly handsome, recklessly sexual super spreader. The labeling fluke at the CDC provided an all-too-pithy, almost metaphysical confirmation that Dugas was singularly to blame for AIDS. You know, I adore doctors, but I must say, if it is an epidemic, this gay plague thing, it's your fault for not stopping it. It's not mine. But this story was far from the truth. The incubation period of HIV made it highly unlikely Dugas gave the virus to all of those he was connected to in the cluster study. And at the same time the book and the band played on was released in 1987, the same month, more information was coming out that should have slowed down this patient zero narrative around Dugas. A kind of medical detective in a cramped closet filled with odds and Tissue samples that had been taken from a St. Louis teenager almost two decades earlier had now been reanalyzed and had tested positive for HIV. The samples came from Robert Rayford, an African-American boy who died in 1969. He had come down with a mysterious combination of symptoms, so mysterious that his doctors stowed away tissue samples for further study. By 1987, researchers claimed those samples tested positive for HIV. Researchers may be saying hello to a new but not inconsistent theory about the spread of the disease. Generally Writer and AIDS organizer Ted Kerr had been looking into the story of Robert Rayford for years and even spent a summer in Rayford's hometown where he tried to trace this history. And I really thought that I would go to St. Louis and there would just be a wealth of knowledge about Robert Rayford waiting for me. I thought I would... Go Some sort of museum exhibit, archives, a plaque, something. But in fact, the opposite was true. I would say that first visit, which was in 2016, I didn't find one person who had heard of him. Ted started asking around. Rayford was a remarkably private person. But Ted eventually discovered where the boy lived, where he was buried. He found his death certificate and started searching for other materials. School records are hard to find. I've searched gearbooks to find him or his brother. Ted was obsessed. Another disease detective on the trail of HIV. Still, the whole time during his big search, something stuck in Ted's head. Advice he received from when he first started looking into Robert Rayford. During that first summer of research, I was posting things on Instagram as I was discovering things like the like the 1987 headline that confirmed Robert's death. And I had a friend who is an AIDS activist in Canada just message me privately and say, be careful, don't turn Robert into the new patient zero. Ted knew the label could spell trouble, even if the person was no longer around to hear it. Although flight attendant Gaetan Dugas died before anyone knew him as patient zero, the publication of Randy Schiltz's And the Band Played On brought on a tsunami of suffering for Dugas' family. Schultz and its publisher did not contact Dugas' family before the book came out. And so they were very much hit with a wave of negative publicity and huge amounts of media interest, requests for interviews. Historian Richard McKay says a slew of international headlines followed the book's publication, dubbing Dugas a monster, the Columbus of AIDS placing responsibility for the entire epidemic on the man who flew too much. Journalists suggested he refused medical attention and instead opted to have sex with as many people as possible. His widowed mother and siblings, all exhausted, pleaded for an end to the, quote, web of untruths. Huge stigmatization for being the family members of the man blamed for introducing the most deadly new epidemic in North America in decades. Claims of Robert Rayford's HIV-positive tissue samples taken from well over a decade prior did little to slow the anger aimed at Dugas. But in smaller circles, 
a new round of speculation was sparked. Speculation aimed at Rayford. There's ways in which people try to claim Robert as gay. Here's Ted Kerr again. Or maybe try to connect him to conspiracy theories that were happening around lead poisoning in St. Louis or um, underground child prostitution rings in St. Louis. And I think all of those are not helpful. They're understandable, but they're not helpful. Especially considering that not everyone includes Rayford in the history of HIV. The medical community does not embrace his story because of the way that his story unfolded. Somehow, the press reported on Rayford's HIV diagnosis before the results appeared in a peer-reviewed publication, which has led some to question the veracity of those tests. There's also the fact that those results have never been replicated and likely never will be. The saved tissues were destroyed during Hurricane Katrina, so no more scientific investigation can be done on the material that came from Robert's uh, body. At this point, we don't know exactly when HIV entered the United States or exactly how it got here. New research suggests the virus may have entered New York as early as 1970. Still, Ted remains interested in the case of Robert Rayford, a boy best known for his death and what it may reveal. Not so much about the boy, but about all of us. If he had not been a black teenager, if he had been a white person or somebody older, would the alarm bells that began the AIDS crisis response in America, would they have rung in 1969 when he died if he had not been a black teenager? So I think the medical community also doesn't want to wrestle with those questions. That story was reported by Grant Hill. We're talking about conditions that carry major stigma. And coming up, we'll hear from researchers who are exploring how stigma affects healthcare. We often make judgments really quickly about their willpower and determination, assume that they must be lazy, slothful, unable to adhere to plans and regimens. That's next on The Pulse. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. Trials in multiple states, state and federal charges, plea deals, witness testimony, gag orders. The trials of former President Trump are really hard to keep straight. And that's why we created Trump's Trials, a weekly podcast where we break down the biggest news from each of his legal cases and what it all means for democracy in about 15 minutes. I'm Scott Detrow. Listen to Trump's Trials from NPR. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about stigma around different health conditions. Stigma often affects how people feel about themselves, whether they seek care or not, or how their doctors treat them. When Lene Voss was about 12 years old, she went for her annual physical with her mother and sisters. The doctor measured Lene's height and weight and asked her what she liked to eat. She said sandwiches, and she still remembers what the doctor said next. The doctor turns to my mom in front of both my sisters also. He asked, so you just let her sit around and eat sandwiches all day and night? I felt insulted. I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. At one point, it made me not want to go to a doctor ever for anything unless I was really, really sick. 
Harvard obesity researcher and physician Fatima Cody Stanford is trying to change how physicians interact with patients who struggle with weight issues. But she told me that she has occasionally caught herself judging her patients. I've been taking care of a woman who was one of my internal medicine patients for approximately three years. She was a patient that did have severe obesity. They had been working on lifestyle factors, the quality of her diet and her physical activity, but the patient's weight did not budge. Then one day, Fatima ran into her at the grocery store. And it was right as she was about to check out. And she noticed that I was surveying her grocery cart and said, see, Dr. Stanford, I have been doing everything you've said. And when I did survey that grocery cart, it was really picture perfect, really all lean proteins, whole grains, fresh fruits and vegetables. And then I began to realize that here I was questioning whether or not she had been abiding by the advice that we had focused on over the last three years, recognizing here that she had been doing so, but her body was just resistant to those lifestyle changes. Fatima says we have lots of biases when it comes to people with weight issues. We often make judgments really quickly about their willpower and determination, um, assume that they must be lazy, slothful, unable to adhere to plans and regimens. What do we know about what contributes to obesity? So we know it's a multifactorial, multidisciplinary disorder. Um, A lot of it regulated by how the brain controls weight. There are environmental factors that contribute to weight, biological factors, maternal and paternal developmental factors that contribute to weight, medications that are prescribed that can cause weight gain. So even when there's a lot of research out there that points to different causes, people still point fingers. And that really affects how we view a health issue and how we deal with it. Alex Brewis has co-authored a book about the impact of stigma around health issues. It's called Lazy, Crazy, and Disgusting, Stigma and the Undoing of Global Health. Alex is a biomedical anthropologist at Arizona State University. She first became interested in stigma when she was working on a project on women's infertility in the Central Pacific, in Micronesia. And I was really struck by how I could be talking to women who were the same age as me, you know, when I was in my early 20s, who had already got to a point where they felt their life was in an almost inescapable bind because they couldn't have children. And in that particular community, having children was one of the ways in which being an adult woman was defined. And I I think it's that comparison between where I was and what people were telling me about what mattered most in their lives was really a start to sort of thinking about how and why our physical state becomes socially acceptable or unacceptable. Alex did more research on issues like body image, attitudes toward weight or attention deficit disorder in many different countries around the world. And she saw similar themes emerge. When people are judged by others to have a moral failing that's exhibited in their body, whether it's as a disease that they've been diagnosed with or the physical state of their body that's visible to others, it really makes it very hard for people to have a good life. So many different conditions carry stigma. Obesity, mental health issues, certain types of viruses or cancers. And I asked Alex what they have in common. So one of the things that sort of key to understanding stigma is this idea that there's a moral judgment being applied. And it's a very arbitrary one in the sense that it can be a judgment that's relevant in one context but not in others. So it's not intrinsic to the disease condition itself. It's related to the symbolic meanings that people put around that disease or that body type. The most stigmatised conditions tend to be those that have the least amount of explanation, but particularly that might be seen as incurable or chronic. I also would say that one of the other themes that you see when you look across different societies as an anthropologist around stigma is that when you have a disease that's already associated with a group or communities that are are marginalised or otherwise discriminated against, it tends to layer on more heavily. So, for example, diseases that become in the public imagination associated with 
specific countries of origin or sexual identities tend to become, have a doubling down effect with stigma. Alex says stigma can be especially harmful when a condition is immediately visible. The stigmas that are most harmful to people in terms of making it hard to have a good life and a dignified life are the ones that can't be masked. So there's some disease conditions where people have a choice to reveal themselves to others. Right? So it might be, for example, HIV status. You might be able to decide whether you disclose or not. But the really the conditions that people struggle with the most is one where there's absolutely no escape in any context, such as um, having a very large body is one of the ones that we've been doing the most work on. And the reason it's inescapable is because you can't mask it, but also because it's very embedded with self-stigma and stigma that people encounter even when they're at home in a supposedly safe space. Can you think of a condition where the stigma has shifted? And if so, how that shift came about? When we talk about what actually seems to make the most immediate shift in sort of the cultural understanding around a condition has been some of these celebrity normalizations of, say, mental health conditions. So when you have the celebrities that come out and talk about living with different mental health conditions, whether it's bipolar disorder or living with schizophrenia and so on, it is starting to very quickly normalize the condition in the minds of people that might have not had that exposure before. And because, you know, if it's people that are celebrities that people already feel a, an emotional connection to and like, then that casts, you know, a very positive direction for being more open about talking about the condition and they can get the ball rolling. But also activist communities are very, very important to shifting public attitudes. Alex Bruce is a biomedical anthropologist at Arizona State University. Together with Amber Woodage, she's written a book on stigma called Lazy, Crazy and Disgusting, Stigma and the Undoing of Global Health. Coming up, living with a condition that's become associated with supervillains and serial killers. It's very easy for a person like me to put on a mask and become whatever it is I need to be to get through a situation. That's next on The Pulse. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. What's happening on NPR podcasts? Money. Power. Tacos. White collar crime. Green parties. Black reparations. More of the perspectives that make your world a more vibrant place. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about health conditions that carry a lot of stigma. Imagine having a diagnosis that's been given to serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. A diagnosis we tend to associate with the scariest movie villains like Heath Ledger's Joker. So you think Batman's made Gotham a better place? Look at me. Look at me! 
I'm talking about psychopathy, though psychiatrists now refer to it as antisocial personality disorder. Here's how it's defined. A condition in which a person has a long-term pattern of manipulating, exploiting, or violating the rights of others. This behavior is often criminal. A few other common characteristics include no regard for right or wrong, violent and impulsive behavior, prone to lying, stealing, and fighting. And then, to put a chilling cap on it, witty, charming, and fun to be around, and no sense of empathy, guilt, or remorse. Psychopathy is rare. Researchers estimate it affects about 1% of Americans. And of course, not everybody who has this diagnosis turns out to be a serial killer. But it does loom large in our imagination. So how do you manage your life when you've been given this diagnosis? Reporter Liz Tung has this profile. I realized just how much stigma there is surrounding psychopaths when I started looking for one to talk to. For my job, I have to find patients with different conditions all the time, and usually it's easy. I connect to them through advocacy organizations, forums, support groups, but this time I hit a dead end. Same thing when I reached out to psychopathy researchers. Most of them either didn't work directly with psychopaths or they said they couldn't violate confidentiality. So finally, I turned to the one website where I have actually seen people speak up who say they're psychopaths, Reddit. Not only does Reddit have separate subreddits dedicated to psychopathy, sociopathy, and ASPD, it's home to dozens of AMAs, or Ask Me Anything posts, by people who claim to be psychopaths, with an emphasis on the word claim. In reality, a lot of the time they end up sounding more like teenage edgelords who've watched American Psycho one too many times. It was in this sea of psychopaths and likely fake psychopaths that I came across a guy I'll call Paul. We're not using his real name because of privacy concerns. Unlike the teenage edgelords, Paul seemed pretty low-key. He posted about cars and funny memes, healthy meal prep, and computer geek stuff. And very occasionally, the odd comment about his diagnosis with antisocial personality disorder. So I reached out, and Paul was instantly on board. Not only that, he promised to show me proof of his diagnosis when we connected on Zoom. So we got started. I'm just trying to grab my medical records because you said you wanted those. I really should have just, you know, saved them. That way I'd have them. But I'm not a smart man. This is Paul, and as you can hear, he sounds like a totally nice, normal, even self-deprecating kind of guy. But as we talked, I could still hear those descriptions of psychopaths rattling around in my head. Manipulative, deceptive, witty, and charming. Paul didn't really have a reason to lie to me. And yet, as he rifled around for his medical records, I couldn't help but think, can I trust anything this guy says? How do I know he even really has a diagnosis? He could be lying. That's what psychopaths do. Of course, I didn't say this, but even so, Paul seemed to lean right into my fears. Having one of these diagnoses means that it's very easy for a person like me to put on a mask and become whatever it is I need to be to get through a situation. And it doesn't necessarily matter if that is a straight up lie, a twist of the truth, where most people would feel guilt and say this is wrong. I just don't have that feeling. Psychopaths and sociopaths tend to only care about themselves and furthering their goals. They don't really care who gets hurt in the process because that's just the way it is for us. If you look at his immediate stats, Paul seems like a pretty normal guy. He's in his mid-30s. He has a girlfriend of almost a year. Before that, he was married to a woman who he stayed with for almost 20 years. He makes good money working in cybersecurity. His favorite hobbies are brewing his own beer and tinkering with electronics. But as I peeled back the layers, it became clear how antisocial personality disorder has shaped his life. Paul got his diagnosis kind of by accident. A little over 10 years ago, he was training to become a private pilot. He's a Marine vet, so it was all paid for, and had already gotten his license when he went for his first cross-country flight with an instructor. I spent like six hours getting ready for this flight. I plotted waypoints all along the place that I could see. I did. I put a ton of work into this. We show up the morning of and he says, ah, oh, we're not going to deal with your flight plan. We're going to, we're just going to play it by ear. It'll be fine. So Paul shrugs and goes along with it. 
The flight's going okay until he started doing his first landing and noticed that the plane felt different. And I look over and his hands are on the controls. He's landing the plane. I'm like, guy, what's going on here? Like, I'm a pilot. Why can't I fly this plane myself? He says, well, I don't know you. I don't trust you. And I was like, well, the rest of the world does. Why don't you? Then he told me to respect my elders. And I was like, boy, you're 22. I'm 24. I didn't go to war so I could come to college and listen to jerk offs like you tell me how to live my life. Long story short, Paul reported the instructor. The instructor reported Paul claiming a safety incident. And Paul got suspended from the program. But as I was being kicked out of the program, they told me that I should get anger management counseling because apparently turning the Marine mode on isn't good for anybody but Marines. So he did. Paul says it was his first time seeing a mental health professional of any kind. And at that first visit, they told him they suspected he might have ADHD and could benefit from medication, which is something he'd heard before as a kid. So he decided to get tested for it by the VA. It was a long, in-depth evaluation that ultimately yielded a surprise result. And they were very clear that I don't have ADHD, but I do have depression and antisocial personality disorder. Paul says it was a determination they made based on his past medical records. Along with my previous history of criminality in childhood, along with the fact that I had like a very, very rough upbringing. You might think that being diagnosed with a condition associated with serial killers would be incredibly jarring, maybe even devastating. But Paul says the main emotion he remembers, if you can call it that, is curiosity. I remember asking the guy, what does this mean for me? Like, what is this diagnosis actually? Like, I'm not an antisocial person. I'm a social butterfly. I talk to people in the line at the checkout stand, like, all the time. I'm not antisocial. And he explained that it's just, I don't feel guilt in the same way that others do. They didn't make any recommendations for treating the ASPD. It's a notoriously difficult condition to deal with. But the diagnosis did cause Paul to do some introspection. He spent the next few months looking for answers. He read research articles and books about antisocial personality disorder. And he learned that experts think it's a result of both nurture and nature. Even if you have the genes for it, it might only express itself when the right or the wrong environmental factors flip a switch. I certainly looked for explanations from this diagnosis. I looked into my past to see if this fit the the MO of things I had done. And whether they were or they weren't there, I certainly think that I found them. Paul grew up poor with a single mom in Tennessee. And he says things weren't easy. The entirety of my life, my mother's had mental issues. He says she has a reduced mental capacity thanks to a high fever when she was a child. She would often forget things. Either that or she would lie. Paul was never really sure which. She had a hard time maintaining a job or steady relationships. She would forget to buy groceries, pay the bills. There just wasn't a lot of stability in Paul's life. And there was other trauma, too. When I was 12, I found out that my dad wasn't my real dad. And that kind of led me to do some things that, you know, weren't great. I got into drugs, got really big into, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. As he got older, Paul's behavior got worse. He was expelled from school and found himself increasingly drawn to violence. When I was younger, violence was an easy means to get what I wanted. Because when you threaten people, normal people aren't ready or prepared to defend themselves. And if they are, you kind of get a feel for that. But generally speaking, raising your voice, flexing your muscles, not that I have any anymore, but raising your voice, flexing your muscles gets you to places, places that you wouldn't think that you could go. But then something changed things for Paul. Right out of high school, he joined the Marines. I got a fresh start and a ticket to literally anywhere that wasn't Tennessee. I asked Paul if his penchant for violence had anything to do with why he joined the Marines. And he said no. It was more about wanting to get out, to go places, get an education, become someone he could be proud of. He ended up spending four years in the Marines, including time spent overseas in combat. Ultimately, he was discharged in 2010 after breaking his back. After that, he ended up getting his bachelor's degree in computer science and then his master's in cybersecurity. After the flight school detour, he set his eyes on a new goal. In 2014... I applied to work for the FBI as a cybercrimes specialist intern. I actually applied in 13, and then the furlough happened. And in 14, they got back to me and said, hey, it's your lucky day. We picked you first out of 3,500 people. 
But to be selected, Paul needed to go through a rigorous background check, which included a polygraph, otherwise known as a lie detector test. And shortly after the polygraph test, they sent me a one-page letter that said, you failed your polygraph test. You're not eligible for employment by the FBI at any point ever in your life. We'll be rescinding the position. Have a good life. Up until this point, everything Paul had said seemed plausible. But this, for me, was a red flag. Polygraphs are famously unreliable. Would the FBI really use pseudoscience as part of their screening criteria? Well, I looked it up later, and quick answer, yes, yes, they do. So anyway, Paul was furious. By this time, he'd already gotten kicked out of flight school and received his diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. And the question of lying had become a bit of a sore point for Paul. His wife, for instance, began suspecting that everything he told her was part of an intricate lie, which actually wasn't far from the truth. I cheated on my wife a lot. Oh, my ex-wife. A lot. Like a lot, a lot. Pretty much every time I left town, sometimes in town. I never saw an issue with it. Ever. Even looking back in my memory, I look back and I'm like... I didn't ever feel like this was wrong or bad, even though I literally had to hide an entire part of my life from basically the whole world. Paul says he never felt particularly guilty about the cheating or the deception. But keeping all the lies straight was exhausting. By that time, lying was second nature to Paul. He used lies strategically whenever necessary, except that is during the polygraph test with the FBI. Ironically, Paul says he was completely truthful which was part of why the whole thing was so infuriating. As he seethed, Paul tried to figure out his next step. That led me to get very drunk and formulate the idea, well, if I can't join them, I'm going to use my talents to beat them. And this is where things turned dark for Paul, literally. He decided to make use of his cybersecurity skills for a different purpose, selling drugs on the dark web. And before too long, I was running, I mean, for lack of a better word, a, a global drug empire. I don't know, Empire, there are 10 employees. Um, but I paid their tuition to college completely, and they did whatever I asked them to do, and they didn't ask questions. So I imported all these drugs, packaged them, processed them, had them tested to be sure they were what they said they were, and then distributed them to downstream dealers. I was an importation middleman, and it made me a decent amount of money. It was that success that would be Paul's undoing. He was distributing so much ecstasy that pretty soon, the state he was living in formed a task force to figure out where it was all coming from. And they just started arresting people, and they just made their way up the chain. Eventually, they got to the guy that I was selling to and said, give us your dealer and we'll let you go, just like they said to all the others. And uh, they did. So one of my dealers gave me up. At first, Paul was confident that he'd covered his tracks well enough to avoid conviction. But as it turned out, either he was sloppier or the investigators were savvier than he thought. They not only found his drug stash, they seized all his electronics, including an unencrypted backup server. On it, investigators found evidence of Paul's drug trade, along with activities by one of his employees. Long story short, one of them was collecting a lot of child pornography. Like a lot. So the computer, the backup computer, plenty of child porn because it's backing up that server. That server, plenty of child porn because that's where it was stored. And um, yeah, plenty of evidence to make sure that I uh, was convicted. So who was it who was downloading the child porn? There was myself and five people who had access to that computer. To be quite honest, I was high all the time. Wasn't really watching what was going on. It was my own failure. But all I can tell you definitively is it wasn't me. And whether you believe me or not, hey, I've struggled with that for the last six years of my life. So scouts honor, I guess. I don't know. It wasn't me. Luckily for Paul, there were some questions about the legality of the search warrant, which his lawyer used to bargain Paul's 19 charges down to a felony for the drugs and two counts of deviant sexual acts. He was sentenced to just under a year in prison, none of which he served, and four months under house arrest. All in all, things could have been worse. Paul says he basically broke even money-wise, but the fallout was life-changing. He got a divorce and really struggled finding work. I applied to 3,000 jobs over the last five years. I've had 80 different offers, and out of those 80 offers, only two have not been rescinded. And those are the two jobs I worked at, ironically enough. Um, there's literally no future for me 
in America, ever, like at all. Unless I get my record sealed, there's, there's no possibility of me working for an American-based company. It just won't happen. He eventually found work with a Swiss company, and today he's rebuilt a lot of his life. But Paul says the whole debacle really knocked him down a few pegs, in a way he now says he actually needed. I don't agree with the drug laws in America, so I simply ignored them. And that, I think, is a, a very real symptom of what a sociopath or a psychopath would do. These rules, I don't like them, I don't agree with them, so f*** them. It definitely taught me that whether I agree with the rules or disagree with the rules, I can't flaunt them to that level. I can't flaunt my disagreement to that level. One of the big questions I had going into this interview was, what's the difference between someone like, say, Ted Bundy and someone like Paul? As a kid in his teens and 20s, Paul was violent. He was manipulative. He cheated on his wife habitually. He screwed people over with no regard for the consequences. And he says he thinks this horrible experience, starting with the FBI rejection and ending with him narrowly avoiding prison, is a big part of what prevented him from going down an even darker path. I think if the FBI never had of turned me down, I'd still be that guy who thinks he can't fail. And having that guy as a federal police officer is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. Because I know me. I know who I used to be and I know who I'm capable of being. And it wouldn't have ended well for the people that I looked at, the people that I set my sights on. In fact, Paul says it's the bad things that happened to him that pushed him to do something a lot of people with ASPD don't do, get therapy. He first saw a therapist for a short while after he was arrested and dealing with suicidal thoughts. And then again, starting a few months ago, following a string of bad luck. Failing the exam for a prestigious certification, a failed expensive effort to get his criminal record sealed, and finding out his mom had cancer, among other things. The therapy started out as a way for Paul to deal with the crises that were happening in his life. But he says it's also turned into an opportunity for introspection, for making himself better. To be clear, Paul doesn't exactly think of his antisocial personality disorder as a problem. He says he thinks of it as something between a mental disorder and a form of neurodiversity, almost a character trait, neither good nor bad, just the way he is. So Paul doesn't intentionally work on treating his ASPD, though he does talk with his therapist about finding new ways of relating to people and new ways of relating to himself that don't involve completely shutting out his feelings. Today, Paul says he's a relatively normal guy. He still struggles a bit with empathy. He might not feel love in exactly the same way as other people, but he's seen the consequences of bad behavior. For instance, he says he doesn't cheat on his girlfriend, partly for her benefit, partly because keeping the lies straight is just too difficult and complicated. And he works hard to keep the few friends he's got left, after most of them exited his life following his legal troubles. By the end of our interview, I was cautiously optimistic that Paul was telling me the truth. And I became convinced of it when he showed me his medical records on his VA patient portal, which said right there in black and white, diagnosis, antisocial personality disorder. But later, things got murkier. After our conversation, I checked up on everything Paul told me, where he'd lived, his pilot's license, his military service, his court records. And at first, it all checked out. But there was one tiny thing that gave me doubts, his age. One of the news articles about his drug charges said that Paul was seven years older than he'd told me he was. That sent me spinning. If he was lying about that, does that mean he was lying about other stuff? Why would he lie about his age when he told the truth about stuff like being charged with possession of child porn? He didn't need to tell me any of that. What game was he playing? So I double-checked public records, and I realized that the article I'd read had made a mistake. Paul was telling the truth. I just couldn't see past his diagnosis. This is an issue that Paul is painfully conscious of. Do you feel the stigma of ASPD? Absolutely. Just Google. Google the term dating a sociopath or dating a psychopath. How many articles are you going to find? And It's thousands. It's got to be. And you always see people talk about how most sociopaths are in the criminal justice system. I hate that I'm a statistic of this, but it's true, mostly because 
the likelihood of a psychopath being committed to an institution of one type or another, mental health institution, a, a jail, prison, what have you, is substantially higher than a normal person. And because all psychopaths are sociopaths, they all get lumped together. But additionally, personally speaking, without any professional knowledge on the topic whatsoever, I wonder if some things, some tenets of ASPD are more of a learned behavior than an intrinsic behavior. Because when you look at a, uh, when you look at the, the very end of the spectrum of a psychopath, you look at someone who has zero remorse, someone who does cruel things and doesn't give a shit. And then you've got the opposite end where people have the capacity to care. They just choose not to. Just because someone has the capacity to do something doesn't mean they will. A nuclear bomb has the capacity to level a city, but it doesn't do that unless someone tells it to. Um, and it's much the same way as myself, you know, like I, I have a, I have an ability to do these incredibly bad things and not feel bad about them, but I don't because I choose not to. Um, and I think it's important to know that, you know, there is the potential to have that choice. And some would argue that the ability to choose means that I'm not a true psychopath or a sociopath. Perhaps they're right. My last question is, do you wish you didn't have ASPD? Certainly. I mean, the answer to that is I've always wanted to be normal. But normal is like that that glass ceiling. You can see it that it's there, but you can't reach up and touch it. Um, and that's how it's always been for me. So, yeah, I, I wish I was normal. That story was reported by Liz Tong. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Train. A high-performing business takes a high-performing building. Reach organizational goals while enhancing systems and reducing emissions with Train Energy Services. Explore their consultative approach at train.com slash energy services. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today.